Meet the third person in the world to have a baby from the donated uterus of a deceased woman. Welcome back to the Pregnantish Podcast, where we tell stories of people who build their families against the odds and how science and technology is changing the face of fertility today. Today's episode is brought to you by First Response Pregnancy Test Brand. We know how vulnerable and exciting these testing moments can be. First Response understands that everyone's journey to pregnancy is unique. And when asking yourself, am I pregnant? First Response is there for you. Speaking of being pregnant, I am so excited to sit down today with someone who never expected to be expecting. Born without a uterus, Jennifer Gobrecht didn't imagine she would ever carry a pregnancy. But through the generosity of a family she didn't know and a whole lot of science after she underwent uterus transplant surgery, Jennifer delivered a healthy baby in November of 2019. Jennifer has been in the news as the third woman in the world and the second in the U.S. to deliver a baby from a uterus that was donated to her from a deceased donor. And she's the first one to speak about it publicly. Jennifer's successful uterine transplant surgery happened because of a beautiful donation made from a grieving family. Our family is extremely proud to support transplantation that will enable more women to experience the joy of childbirth. My daughter was the best mother I ever knew. Nothing was more important to her than her children. What a beautiful and fitting legacy for her to help give the gift of motherhood to another woman. Today's podcast is a story of hope, science, and perseverance. Thank you so much for being here, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me. I have so many questions, and I think it's just easiest to begin at the beginning because I want to know when you were first aware of your fertility and what you were told. So I started around the age of 16, which was about 2003. I never got my period, and I started going to my pediatrics office, and they were running some ultrasounds. You know, they were kind of doing a wait-and-see game. And then finally, um, in 2004, they ordered an MRI and had me uh, actually go and see an OB specialist. And the results of the MRI were conclusive that there was no uterus. And I was 17 years old when I was diagnosed. And that day was just such a turning point in my life. Like my whole world kind of went upside down that day. I can only imagine it's it's the last thing you probably expected to hear and your family expected to hear. So what happened next? Do, do you remember that day? It's actually crazy because it was my grandmother's birthday. So we had all these like happy plans and my mom was with me when I got the diagnosis. So we actually sat in the parking lot of the hospital and just cried for like a good hour. Neither one of us were expecting that. Um And honestly, kind of after that point, it it was just a very weird transition to to set my mind to because I lived my whole life thinking that there was nothing different about me. Um, So for me, it kind of came with a bit of, you know, feeling very different from your friends who were, you know, all had their periods, all had no, you know, known issues of fertility at the time to kind of setting me apart at such a young age, which is a lot to sort of mentally, you know, digest. Absolutely. I mean, how can, 
anyone relate to you when they're probably complaining about their period or kind of swapping notes about it. And here you are trying to process this major life-changing update. How does it affect your life and the way you imagined your future at that time? Well, I knew that I didn't want to be the type of person that hid that type of thing from anyone close to me. Like if you were my friend, you knew my business. If you were someone I was dating, it was one of the first things you knew about me. My now husband knew about my diagnosis before we even started dating. Um, So I just felt that transparency was kind of key because I thought that that was a good way for me to cope with it is not hiding from it. And we find that as a theme with so many, not just with infertility, uh, but you know, chapters of grief and major milestones that we're processing, when we process them without support or don't share, it can manifest in a really uncomfortable way. So when you shared it with your now husband, well, how did you meet and how did you share it? Do you remember? So we actually uh, met through mutual friends um, that went to a local college I was visiting um, and we met at uh, an event there and we kind of hit it off, chatted. We were friends for like a good year before we even started dating. And um, it's actually kind of a a funny story. He sent an Onion article, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with that sort of satire um, thing about a uterus. And I said, well, actually, here's a really fun fact about me. I don't have one. And, you know, obviously a lot of questions ensued from that conversation. And it just kind of became, you know, another confidence building part of our, our friendship that later turned into a relationship and marriage and from there. Wow. So when did it turn into dating and then love and marriage and how did you together process your future goals? I mean, did you imagine at some point building a family? You know, I imagine that came up. What were those early conversations like? Well, one of the things that I thought was great about our relationship is we had a lot of communication about it. We were always talking about, well, maybe adoption will be our path or surrogacy, or let's look into IVF earlier on in our, our marriage so that, you know, we know there's no biological clock ticking. Um, you know, if we want to have a surrogacy route or gestational carrier route, we kind of are researching it and kind of making, you know, a pathway towards that goal of having some type of family, whether it work out through an IVF surrogacy route or we look into adoption. Yeah. And that makes sense because at that time, this was years ago, I don't even think uterine transplant surgery was uh, even a possibility. Do you remember when the first one happened? So it's actually kind of funny, right around the time we were getting married, which was 2014, Sweden started to do their uh, living donor trials. And I remember us talking about it and saying, wow, that's really cool. You know, that's going to be so great for for women like me in the future. Like if that ever becomes a, you know, viable option. And, you know, (laughs) little did we know. (laughs) Yeah, little did you know you'd be in the news front and center making history. And earlier on the podcast, we actually featured April, who was one of the first uterine transplant donors. So we've really, I think it's so interesting to hear about it from both sides. And she, of course, is a living donor who is able to recount her experience on our show. Um, But at what point did you hear about the possibility of it happening for you? 
So one of the things I really focused on is whenever I heard anything about uterus transplants, I really wanted to keep in the know of the science. It was just fascinating to me. Um, and then one day in one of the uh, infertility groups that I'm in, specifically for my condition, which is um, Mayer-Rokotansky-Kusterhauser syndrome, or easily known as MRKH, um, there's a lot of really great Facebook groups of um, women with that condition connecting with each other all over the world. And someone had posted in one of the Facebook groups a link to a trial for deceased donor uterine transplants at the University of Pennsylvania, which is basically in my backyard. And I was like, this is too close. And I clicked it and looked at the criteria and was like, wow, the age range and all the conditions that they're looking for for this trial really fits what I have. So for me, I was like, I said to my husband, you know what, I'm going to apply. It's right here. So if I am picked, it's not like we have to go very far. You know, they're looking for someone with a lot of my, you know, criteria to check off the boxes for a candidate. I'm, I'm going to go for it. And what were some of the criteria? What were they looking for for you to qualify? You know, age range is part of it. So obviously somebody um, within a very specific age range, which I believe I could probably look up the exact uh, age range, but I fell within that. Um, they were looking for somebody with MRKH type one. So there are two types. Type one, you have a fully formed vagina or mostly formed vagina. Um, and fully functioning ovaries. Um, you also have two kidneys. If you have type 2 MRKH, you sometimes don't have two kidneys. You might not have a vagina at all. And you might have other health conditions that might not make you a great candidate for a transplant surgery. Interesting. So you'd heard about this opportunity. It was literally, it felt like it was in your backyard and you went for it. So tell me about submitting that application. I mean, how were you and your husband feeling? Were you hopeful? Did you feel like if it's meant to be, it will be? What was that like? I mean, we it was one of those things where it's like, you you know, when you submit something, you're like, okay, it's out in the universe, kind of letting the universe do its thing. Um, but the thing that was crazy to us is we heard back in like two days that they were interested in meeting with me. So for us, it was like very little waiting time before we heard something of, hey, we think you might be a candidate. Let's talk. That's amazing. You know, my family story, I needed a gestational carrier with my embryo to bring my daughter into the world. And I remember around that time when I was looking for a GC because, you know, that's its own complicated process. Someone at that time suggested a uterine transplant surgery. And that was, I feel like it was 2016 or 2017. What year was this happening for you? So this would have been um, December of 2017 is when I first, you know, hit submit on that application. Well, that lines up exactly with my story. So that makes sense. So you submitted this application two days later, you get this news and then what happens? So with uterus transplants, it is a very intense process. Um, there is obviously a lot of screening questions and then there's a full evaluation with a multitude of different departments that would be working with a person to undergo a uterine transplant. Can you walk us through that process as a recipient? How do you even prepare for this? What did you have to go through? So first you have to be screened by all the different departments. Um, I met with the main investigators 
who were leading the trial first. And then you have to actually meet with a transplant pharmacist because you end up taking close to 37 pills a day, if not more, sometimes shots for, you know, if you need blood thinners, there's a whole multitude of a pharmacological piece to this transplant process. Um, so that evaluation was a lot of scientific medic medication information that, um, you know, you really need to know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and then you meet with um, the transplant surgeons who kind of talk through how they've prepared to do a surgery they've never done before. So that's kind of putting a lot of faith into, you know, a team of experts in other fields that are now trying to become an expert in a new field. Um, you meet with nutritionists and then you meet with maternal fetal medicine because you know going into this pregnancy, it's going to be a high-risk pregnancy. Uh, even if you do everything perfect, just because the nature of it being a transplant pregnancy and the added level of a new transplant pregnancy and not much data to go on of how that type of pregnancy will, you know, progress, the maternal fetal medicine screening um, is a lot. And then you also meet with social workers to kind of talk about your support network. Um, one of the things, obviously, I have a very loving husband, and that is kind of part of the trials. They want to make sure you're in a, in a strong relationship um, for a certain amount of years. Um, but I also have my parents close by who are both retired, who were able to kind of fill in any gaps for, you know, appointments um, and, and any kind of help with anything else in life um, and just a, a strong group of friends. And so you kind of talk through with the social worker of what your support network looks like. Um, and then there's other ancillary meetings with, you know, nutritionists. One of the most intense meetings and evaluations is with a psychologist who actually meets with you and your husband and you go through a pretty intense screening. I think in, in total of us actually being in the hospital to do that screening, it was like about six hours long of going through any psychological, any things that have happened in our life. Um, and to kind of talk through some of the psychological imp implications that would kind of come from a, a trial like this. What were some of the implications that you guys were worried about or thinking about? You know, I think that the biggest thing with medical trials is is that the looming, you know, you could not survive. I mean, I think that's always going to be the the number one implication of like something could go wrong. And, and that's true to be said with any surgery, um, especially a, a never been done before uh, surgery um, or an uncommon one. So I think that that was something that kind of always weighed heavily, just, you know, you're really taking a, a big leap of faith. Um, and, you know, any major surgery can kind of give you that uh, back of your mind, like, oh, I hope nothing really goes wrong. Of course, I can only imagine you knowing that the team had never done it, and they're testing it. I mean, they're obviously skilled professionals, but your case is building the data that must be a very intense feeling. What did you know about the team that would be working with you? Were you in touch with the medical side, the whole medical team? Oh, 100%. Um, and I had basically a coordinator who helped coordinate all of the different people um, that I'd work with kind of from that screening process. They were all part of my care throughout the entire thing. So anytime anything happened, um, whether it was new information or maybe something 
clinically happened to me that they all wanted to be on the same page about, everyone on the team knew. And I had one go-to person that I could call like four o'clock in the morning and they would get everyone on the horn and figure out like what needed to happen or what the next steps were. I felt very reassured kind of having that point person um, who was a nurse who could really help assess and, and sort of triage any anything um, of what needed to happen next, which I thought was really reassuring as kind of this like trial patient. 100%. I mean, the stakes are just so high. So in terms of their deceased donor program they had, what did you know about that? What did they tell you about your donor? Obviously, the donor's family wanted to be very anonymous as also the donor um, keeping them anonymous. But I did know, obviously, they were a woman, they were a mother, and they were 29 years old. Um, and that was basically all the information I got. Um, and I day doesn't go by that I don't think about her and her family and just how her legacy will always be that, you know, my son is living in here. Wow, that is incredible. I heard also that you they wrote you a letter. Would you mind sharing that? Sure. Um, this uh, letter was written um, from the mother of the donor. Our family is extremely proud to support transplantation that will enable more women to experience the joy of childbirth. My daughter was the best mother I ever knew. Nothing was more important to her than her children. What a beautiful and fitting legacy for her to help give the gift of motherhood to another woman. That just makes me want to cry. Uh, did you cry reading it? Do you cry reading it? I do. I, I I can't help but get very emotional when I just think of of everything. Um, it it's it's hard not to be. Of course, it changed your life radically, and it's it's incredible. So, in terms of the IVF side, for those listening who don't understand that process, you had to retrieve eggs, correct? You had to create embryos, I imagine with your husband's sperm and your egg. Is that also part of the process as you were preparing for this? So one of the things that was very interesting about our selection for this process is that we actually already had eggs created. Um, one of the things that is unique about MRKH syndrome is that you do have fully functioning eggs, um, and you can retrieve them. For most women, um, especially with type 1 MRKH, you can retrieve them just the same way any person going through IVF would be able to retrieve them. Um, sometimes with certain cases, you might have to retrieve them abdominally, but for my case, I didn't. So I went through just the standard IVF process a couple of years prior. Um, so we had eggs um, kind of all ready to go for the trial. That's awesome. And what was that experience like for you? Because you were at that point in your 20s. How old were you when you had your retrieval? So I was just turned 29. Um, and I definitely wanted to try to still do my egg retrieval while I was still in my 20s. Um, you know, I, I work at a, a different hospital um, and I adore our reproductive program there. Um, and have gotten to work with them a lot. And I was very excited to kind of go through and work with a lot of doctors I got to work with kind of in my daily life anyways. I mean, it is scary though. You're still kind of taking these injections. It can be emotionally and physically draining, but at least the 
inconvenience of, you know, trying to go to a clinic, at least the clinic was right by work. I could go before work, go do my work. If anything happened or I needed to go to the clinic, it was a block away. So I did at least have some breaks. Not that life gave me many, but that was definitely one of them. At least it made the IVF process a lot easier to fit into the crazy working world as well. I know you said you were in groups for your specific condition, but were you ever in other infertility groups and how did you relate or not relate in your memory of that chapter of your life? I think the thing that really sets um, me apart when I'm active in just a general IVF group is when women talk about, you know, getting their periods and it becoming um, a sign that they weren't pregnant that time. I think it's hard as somebody with MRKH because we think about it from the stance of, well, at least you have the potential to possibly become naturally pregnant because you have a functioning uterus and you're getting your period. So I think that that was usually when those complaints would kind of come, you know, in those types of boards or groups, that was always hard to relate to. But, you know, a lot of the motions of going through IVF, I definitely could could relate to. And it's so interesting that every nuance of infertility has its own painful process, but different triggers, right? So if you're going through secondary infertility, a primary infertile person might think, well, okay, you have one, that's really lucky and I can't even have one. But if you're sitting in the seat of secondary infertility, it hurts and heartache is heartache. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't or you wouldn't want another one. And I think it's so interesting to hear you talk about the people who are blessed to have their period because that could signal one day a pregnancy. It's time for our Two Lines Act Break presented by First Response. When you're asking yourself, am I pregnant? Am I really pregnant? Sometimes you want to triple check. That's why we love the First Response Triple Check Pregnancy Test that gives you results three different ways for added reassurance. First Response Early Result and Digital Tests let you know six days sooner. And First Response Rapid Result gives you results in 60 seconds from the day of your missed period. All of these tests are over 99% accurate. When you are consumed with anxiety and excitement because it's long overdue, first response is there for you. Jennifer, we know how long you waited for this. And while you were in these infertility groups thinking, I may never have that positive pregnancy test, but then you did. Can you tell me about the first time you saw the two lines and had that positive pregnancy test? Could you even believe it? So one of the things that my husband and I wanted to do is we wanted to record ourselves, you know, getting the news from the doctor to know if it was real. And our our initial reaction is, you know, we're recording ourselves and the doctor says, I'm getting right to the chase. You're pregnant. And our reaction of like having, you know, you saw the lines, but you hear the doctor say it and we're just bawling our eyes out. We can't believe it. Like this is a legitimate medical fertility miracle that we're getting to have. And I'm pretty sure my husband cursed uh, happily (laughs) and I'm just bawling my eyes out. And I never in a million years ever thought I'd hear the words, you're pregnant. Wow. Or see those two lines. I mean, when you experienced that, was it kind of out of body? What What do you remember about that day, that night? What did you guys do? <laughs> so one of the things that we did a lot through this process, anytime we got good news, is we went out 
to our favorite spot and ate nachos. <laughs> it seems really silly, but it was like our way of celebrating, especially like you can't, you know, open champagne if you're pregnant. So our our celebration, uh, good luck, charm, you know, you know, end zone dance was to go and, and eat some nachos. That's great. And we went out and ate some nachos that night, and it was one of the best plates of nachos I ever had. Amazing. I get it, though. It, it's a celebration, and these rituals become a huge part of anyone's infertility journey because good and bad, you know, good news has its own set of rituals. Bad news has its own set of rituals, and treatments has its own set of rituals. How many times did I wear pineapple socks or bring a lucky charm in my pocket uh, we do these things to kind of timestamp this life-changing experience we're going through. And when it comes to infertility, we know well-meaning people say kind of silly, ignorant things. And I can only imagine when you're born with the medical condition you had without a uterus, and then people tell you advice on how to have a baby. Did that happen ever? How did you respond to that? I mean, it always happened with people who who didn't realize my condition, like somebody who was just a pure acquaintance. You know, the person who always said, well, when are you having kids? And it's like, I don't know, random person. I, I don't know how to respond to that. Um, you know, for the most part, I didn't really get that from anyone I knew because they knew, you know, you don't have a uterus. There's just no shot there. Sometimes people would say, oh, are you looking into adoption? Or, or if I shared with them the IVF process, they're like, oh, are you looking into a gestational carrier or surrogacy? Um, it, it was always those, um, you know, your, your Uber driver or, or that type of person that would say something, you know, just unwarranted. Um, and it's hard. It's hard when, you know, people just make that assumption. Oh, you're married. When are you having kids? That was always the hardest. Um, to, I always had a, a canned response, though. Depending on what it, what time in my life it was, it was like, well, I just got married, so I'm really focusing on that. Or I just adopted a puppy, so we're really puppy training. Like, there's always that. I have my answer to the random person. I don't feel like telling, you know, everything about my infertility, too. But that is so important, too, because otherwise it can it can really affect you when you're going through a hard time and you don't have an answer ready. You could take it so personally, be so hurt by it. You know, I always say at Pregnant-ish, can we be more present, all of us, in our relationships? Because when you're single, someone says, you know, when are you going to start dating? And then when you're dating someone, when are you getting married? And then you get married and it's, when are you having a kid? Then you have a kid. When are you having the next kid? It's exhausting. <laughs> let's Let's just be present. Let's allow someone to just be present in his or her life. So, I know people are well-meaning, but a lot of these invasive questions, especially from the random people, like you said, are just not helpful. So let's go back to that day of the transplant. Uh, can you tell me about how you prepared, what you were feeling, and what happened next? So obviously with a deceased donor transplant, you're just kind of on a transplant list, just like you would be for any other, you know, transplanted organ. It's not like the living ones where they can kind of, you know, match that and plan that out a little bit. So I literally just got a call saying, hey, we found uh, a donor that matches, um, you know, what we're looking for. Uh, you need to come to the hospital uh we're, we're going to, you know, be doing this transplant tomorrow. Um, I, I got a call, I think, Friday night 
I had to be at the hospital before 2 p.m. the next day. And then I had my transplant about 1 a.m. that day. So it was kind of like a 48 hour kind of prep period of like I had time to pack for the hospital and then I had to, you know, intake at the hospital. And then that night they were ready to transplant the organ. And then the organ transplantation was about 10 hours long. So I was under and my poor husband was like sweating bullets for 10 hours. I'm sure. And April, who we interviewed, who donated a uterus, also talked about the length of the surgery, how intricate it was. Did the deceased donor recently pass? Is that why it was such a rush to get you in? Yeah. So that's how um, it, it would be that um, they would have passed within that time frame. And then obviously life-saving organs get precedence for removal. So the surgeons go and remove all the life-saving organs first. And then, especially with a uterus transplant, being able to take out the uterus, you're not just taking out the uterus, but all of the blood vessels around it and part of the, you're taking the cervix and part of the vagina as well. Because again, with MRKH, you're, you're not born with a cervix either. So you're, you're taking kind of almost like three parts and all the blood vessels, you know, surrounding those three parts, because blood flow for pregnancy is extremely important. Um, and one of the main things they monitored my whole pregnancy was how much blood was getting to my uterus. And there's actually really cool um, ultrasounds that they can test that and see how much blood flow is getting into the uterus. And then you find out you're pregnant. I mean, what was your pregnancy like? I can't even imagine the months of the baby growing inside of you. Can you even explain it? Is it even, you know, possible to put into words what it felt like? Um, I feel like I'll never be able to truly capture what it was like in words. I did have an easy pregnancy in the sense of I rarely got sick. I felt pretty great for most of my pregnancy. You know, the baby was very active and he kicked a lot. Um, and I, I remember just completely uh, breaking down in tears the first time I really felt the baby kick because it was something I was told I would never feel. So that was just one of those moments. I'll never forget that feeling. I'll never forget how it made me feel. I'll never forget that moment. It was just so surreal. And I, and I feel like it just made the pregnancy very real. Like you hear the words you're pregnant, but until you feel the baby kick for the first time, it doesn't really set in. And then the baby, um, my son was just so active my entire pregnancy. He was always kicking and moving and it was just kind of reassuring because you're, you're going through a highly monitored pregnancy. I probably got checkups like once a week, if not you know, more than that with someone within my trial. So even going through all these motions of getting lots of checkups, just knowing that, you know, he was moving around, all of his checkups were great. You know, all the ultrasounds were, were you know, great. Like he was adorable, um, growing great. It, just those kind of milestones throughout the pregnancy. It was just very reassuring. I, it's so hard to put into words, but I, I felt great and I just, I loved, I loved it. And I know not everybody has that experience. Like some people have very tough pregnancies, but even being a high risk pregnancy, like my day to day, I felt awesome. That is so nice to hear. 
So when in the timeline of things, when did the embryo transfer happen? You had the uterine transplant happen. And then I'm sure there's a lot of recovery time before you were able to do an IVF transfer of your embryo into your uterus. So one of the interesting things about a uterus transplant is they have to time everything based off of your first period. Because I've never had one before. Um, So when I did finally have the uterus have its first period, they wait about six months um, for you to have the embryo transfer. So originally for most uterus transplants with living donors, they were waiting about a year, but there was really no data to suggest that the six month to the year mark really made much of a difference. And one of the things that is key about these uterus transplant trials is time, because the less you have the transplant, the better it is for you in the long run, because you are taking those 37 pills I mentioned earlier, A lot of them are immunosuppressants, which is really suppressing your immune system and can be very heavy on your kidneys. Um, So to cut down on any kidney issues or, you know, issues with your immune system, they really want to keep these uterus transplants a shorter period of time as possible. So six months later, I'm going in for my embryo transfer and we got lucky on our first transfer. Oh, my goodness. And it's incredible that you menstruated after that. That must have been a wild thing to experience at that stage. I want to hear about the day when your water broke, if that happened and your baby came. Can you bring me back to that day? Sure. So one of the things with uterus transplants that is somewhat common is that they know they're going to do a C-section a little bit earlier because of, again, timing you know, being of the essence, I actually kind of got preeclampsia towards the end of my pregnancy. So we did the C-section and with the preeclampsia diagnosis, with all uterus transplants, you have the option to do one birth or two. But if you get preeclampsia, they highly recommend not going for two because the odds of you getting preeclampsia again and going into labor even earlier is higher. So we made the decision when the preeclampsia happened to just do one pregnancy um, and to do a C-section hysterectomy um, at that time. Oh, interesting. Okay. So you had your C-section, you woke up, you have a baby in your arms. What happened next? Well, so I feel like our birthing uh, process, there was probably three times the amount of people in a normal birthing room. We had, you know, the standard NICU doctors just to be there. um, And then obviously all the different teams that are going to be there for the birth and also the hysterectomy. Um, So the C-section you're awake for, and it's a standard C-section. We didn't want to know the uh, gender of the embryo. So we got to find out in the delivery room that we had a boy um, and announced it to like, 30 doctors that were there, what his name was going to be. And so we got to, you know, see him be born. And then right after that, I went under for the hysterectomy. So it was kind of a, a, you know, dual, you you see the birth, you see the baby, you go under and, and the hysterectomy, I think was like a two hour surgery. So not as intense as the input as the output, but it was, it was a wild day. I feel like it flew by, um, no complications to either, but just kind of other than the standard preeclampsia, which is fairly common in women and 
nothing that you can really plan for in that sense. But Wow, your body had gone through so much in this short period of time to bring your son in the world. And it's incredible. So how old is he now? And is it still surreal for you? Or are you in your day to day now and it kind of feels normal? Um, I definitely feel like we've gotten into a routine. He's a little over a year old, totally, you know, blowing us away. Uh, he's a, an active little dude. And one of the nice things is we still get to keep in touch with our trial team, still kind of, you know, go in for check ins. As I said, there was that psychological part where we get to still talk to the psychologist every few months, let them know what's going on, you know, just kind of keeping not just the, you know, physical side of the program, but also focusing on the mental side and kind of understanding the mental experience from a uterus transplant pregnancy and post-pregnancy. You know, you talk about a lot of with postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression, but there's really no gauge for what a uterus transplant mother might go through from a mental standpoint. So just trying to also build that data set as well. And you're doing so much to contribute to the future of that. I mean, how does that feel that you literally made history, that your data points, learning from your successful uterus transplant surgery is inspiring a whole new group to go forward? How does that feel for you? I mean, it is something that my husband and I talked very early on you know, the reality of the success of this transplant, you know, we didn't know what we were getting ourselves into, but I had said to my husband, this is more than just us having a baby. This is us being able to contribute, not just to ourselves, but to a whole generation to provide hope. Because even if we aren't successful, they can still learn something from us. Wow. I mean, the way so many families are built today with the help of science and technology, this is one of the most sci-fi stories we can tell today because it's so new and it's extraordinary and kind of stranger than fiction in the most amazing way. So today, do people still ask you about it a lot? Are you a kind of a spokesperson for this? You know, I think that when I can share, you know, people still will find me and reach out and ask questions. And I'm always happy to share because I think it's important to understand that this is an option and what it was like as the patient to go through it. Um, You know, I do try to be active on social media to, you know, provide information of what it was like for my experience. You know, one of my surgeons actually just started not a clinical trial, but a true program at a new hospital to bring another demographic of America this type of surgery. And it is amazing that it's not a clinical trial, but an actual program that you can apply to be a part of and it be the next step to a more common surgery. Amazing. I think, yeah, I think the future is bright when it comes to science and technology and reproduction. It's fast growing. We know that. And I remember when I was looking for my gestational carrier, anyone to help, and that was a hard process. My dad said, well, it's too bad it's not the future because at some point there will be more opportunities to bring babies in the world with technology. And we didn't really know what that meant and we couldn't wrap our head around it. Even now it's hard to imagine, but, um, the future is bright and it's beautiful because it allows people who have a medical condition to create families and for their lives to change. And I always say there's no greater stake in the world for so many of us than family and relationships. It's everything. And um, I'm just so happy that you are here to share your story 
um, that you're in the world, that you created this, you know, you helped contribute to the future of this technology and that you're using your voice and advocacy and experience to support others who don't feel they have options. And I just thank you so, so much for being on the podcast and sharing your incredible story. Well, thank you for letting me tell my story. Um, I hope that someone will hear it out there and, and have some hope and, you know, a little less stress from their infertility journey. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Pregnantish Podcast. We are here to tell the story of how so many modern families are created, and we have a lot more stories coming up. So please subscribe, rate us if you haven't already, and find us wherever podcasts are found. Until next time.